Sometimes houses aren't haunted by ghosts. Sometimes the restless spirits living under the same roof as the legitimate owners and tenants aren't unseen souls of the dearly departed. Sometimes they're very much alive and secretly dwelling within. Wait, what? That's just the stuff of urban legends and horror movies like Crawl Space, Hider in the House, or People Under the Stairs, right? Nope. There have been real-life cases of uninvited phantom boarders and stalkers, such as the Spider-Man of Moncrief Place and the Westfield Watcher. That's what we're examining in this episode of Haunting American True Crimes. for joining me. My name is Courtney Maroc, and it's my pleasure to once again be your host and guide for this episode of the Haunting American True Crime series here on the Haunt Johns podcast. Whether you're a repeat sailor or this is your first jaunt sailing the airwaves with me, thank you for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already so you know when new episodes drop. And if you're enjoying this on YouTube, be sure to leave a thumbs up or rate it if your podcast provider allows. Both things help me very much, and comments, reviews, and shares are also super helpful and always appreciated. Speaking of appreciation, I'd appreciate a little help with something else this episode, too. Here's my dilemma. Like a few of the other episodes have done this season too, this one is sort of inspired by a movie as well. When I was little, I remember a trailer for a horror movie that I don't really remember the name of. Well, actually I don't remember it at all. And I really only remember a little bit of the trailer. I'm not even sure what the plot was about. I think it had something to do with someone secretly living in an attic and either tormenting or killing the people who truly lived in the house. Or maybe that's just what I interpreted it to be about. It might have been about a family secretly keeping a deformed family member who they viewed as a monster locked in the attic or something. It would have been from the late 70s or early 80s. I've hunted for it a little bit online and recently watched trailers for The Changeling, Hell Knight, and even the 1986 version of Crawl Space, even though I know that's too far into the 80s for the movie that I'm thinking of. But basically anything where someone was secretly living in a house, I was looking for. And Hider in the House is a another great candidate because it's definitely about someone living in someone else's attic unbeknownst to them. However, that one's way too far late into the 80s. 
because the movie I'm remembering would have definitely had to have been sometime when I was younger. So definitely sometime around the 1977-78-82 time frame. It, it might have been the unseen. There is one scene during its trailer that sort of looks like the attic that is stored in my memory. But that scene in my memory is slightly different than the one in the trailer. Then again, that's memories for you. They're fickle and not always reliable, aren't they? My brain also may be better able to comprehend the trailer's imagery and the movie's storyline now than it was back when, it, when I was a kid, too. All I know is that whatever the movie was, the trailer creeped me out. Especially because the hatch to our attic was right outside the door of my bedroom in my childhood home. What if someone was living up there and came out at night while I was sleeping? <sighs> Terrifying. Thank goodness I didn't know back then about the real-life case of the Spider-Man of Moncrief Place. Or maybe I did. Maybe I'm confusing a trailer with tales my friends and I used to scare each other with. Ones where a murderous madman lurked in our attics, or sometimes our basements, depending on who was telling the story. And he was just waiting for the right time to kill us and our families and live in our house as his own. Ghosts haunting my house never scared me. The possibility of the nocturnal prowlings of a potentially homicidal phantom squatter, however, was something I pondered every single night for years as I fell asleep while I kept a watchful eye on that attic hatch outside my bedroom door. As my friends and I sat in the auditorium of Cheeseman Academy, the elementary school I attended in Denver, Colorado, which, if you're familiar with Denver's Haunted Cheeseman Park, yes, the school used to stand on the edge of it. And yes, I do have some ghost stories about my school, but that's for another day. Anyway, in the morning during drop-offs, before assembly, after which we'd all then go to our classes, we'd hang out with our friends and talk, or maybe play jacks, whatever it was we did back then. Basically, we'd socialize. We'd also hang out in the auditorium waiting for our parents to pick us up after school, and we'd do the same thing. Socialize and sometimes trade scary stories. But it never dawned on me to question where we got any of our scary stories. I just accepted that whoever was telling them had heard it from someone else and they were just simply repeating it. I never imagined they might be based on fact. Or maybe it was more of a defense mechanism. As long as I believed they were imaginative works of fiction, it was okay to be afraid because it wasn't real. Nothing could, nothing could hurt me. But as it turns out, the lurker in the attic story turns out to be true, and it hails from my hometown. It produced one of the most baffling and bizarre cases in Denver's history. 
At first, it was a real-life locked-room murder howdunit. Then it morphed into a haunted house tale, complete with disembodied voices that caused the victim's widow to move out. Well, sort of. We'll get to that. Neighbors soon believed she was right to leave, that the house really was haunted, when they'd see lights mysteriously turning themselves on and off, and a shadowy specter sometimes creeping around the vacant house, or even blinds suddenly changing positions. They'd report the incidents to police, who couldn't help but entertain the idea that perhaps phantoms were real when they'd come to investigate, but would find nothing. Officially, however, they'd chalk it up to kids playing pranks and trying to scare people. Well, it turned out to be neither pranks nor phantoms, but a real man named Theodore Conies, who would become known as Denver's Spider-Man. But this one was no superhero. It all started on October 17, 1941, when 73-year-old retired railroad auditor Philip Peters was found murdered in his home. His death would become both a whodunit and a howdunit. Not how as in how had he been killed, he'd been bludgeoned to death. That was obvious. No, I mean how as in how did the murderer get out? Neighbors who hadn't heard from Mr. Peters grew concerned because they knew his wife was in the hospital and he was all alone. They went to check on him, and because they knew he must be inside, but his door was locked. Fearing something had happened to him, they broke the door down and unfortunately their fears were confirmed. There was no sign of the killer leaving, but there was also no sign the killer was still in the house either. So what on earth had happened? An answer wouldn't come until nine months later, however, when detectives James Childers and Fred Arsnow went on yet another call to the house to investigate a phantom sighting. When Childers and Arsnow pulled up, they immediately knew this time was going to be different. And maybe it wasn't kids playing pranks after all, but an actual ghost haunting the house especially when they witnessed the front door slowly creaking open, then a gaunt, pale face peering around the corner. What the hell? They ran towards the door, which slammed shut. They busted it open and got inside just in time to see a man's leg disappearing through a tiny hole in the ceiling. They pursued him to the attic and found Theodore Coney's huddled in a corner of what he'd later call his nest, where he'd been living for almost a year. He ended up admitting to killing Philip Peters and still being in the house when Mrs. Peters returned from the hospital. As it turned out, she didn't move out just because she kept hearing odd noises in the house. She had suffered a couple of bad falls, which had injured her hips. She was pretty much bedridden. Her son urged her to move to Grand Junction with him so he could better help care for her. 
When she learned the identity of the man who had killed her husband and had been living in her house, she said she remembered Ted Coney's. He was a member of a mandolin group her husband was also a part of. Sometimes the men gathered in the Phillips's house to play music. They had also hosted Coney's to dinner a few times at their house. But that had been years and years ago, before he'd moved away. So what had happened? Coney's uh, didn't have such a great life. He ended up down on his luck, and he'd only recently moved back to Denver at that time and said he'd remembered Peters and their friendship. He hoped his old friend might help him out, so he went to his house to beg for food. But he got there just as Peters had gotten a car to go see his wife in the hospital. That's when Coney's decided to just help himself, originally intending only to steal a little food and money and be on his way. But while he was in the house, he noticed a small trap door in the ceiling, one that the Encyclopedia of American Crime described as being only two and a half times larger than a cigar box. A normal man might not be able to fit through it, but Coney's was very gaunt. He slid right through and discovered an attic cubby he decided would make a nice place to hole up for the winter. So he gathered up some rags and old radio, a little food, and stashed himself away. When Peters left or was asleep, Coney's would emerge and rustle himself up a little food, but only a little so as not to arouse suspicions. But then during one of his food raids, the one on the night of October 17th, Coney's miscalculated. He thought Peters was out, but he had only been taking a nap. He entered the kitchen to find Coney's, who attacked Peters and killed him. Police had noticed the tiny trapdoor during their initial murder investigation, but they figured no way anyone could fit through it, so they never looked up there. If Detectives Childers and Arsnow hadn't seen Coney's leg when they gave chase on July 31, 1942, nine months after Peter's murder, would they have assumed the same thing? Who knows, but as luck would have it, they caught Coney's in his disappearing act. The headlines that followed were great, many of which hit the news on August 1st, like Ghost in Attic Haunts Home of Man He Killed from the Daily News. Or Here's Where the Ghost Lived from the St. Louis Globe Democrat. And Attic Wraith Reenacts His Murder of Man He Now Says He Knew in Denver Earlier from the Greeley Daily Tribune. Or this one from the Ventura County Star Free Press, which reflects the name papers would quickly give Coney's. Denver amazed by tale of Spider-Man killer. But why did they call him a Spider-Man? It was because Detective Arsnow had said a man would have to be a spider to stand it long up there. Referring to the attic, which had been stifling hot when they'd found Coney's at the end of July in 1942. After his arrest, Coney's also told police it got brutally cold up there in the winter too. So cold his feet nearly froze, but he preferred that to the heat, which made it hard to breathe. On November 2, 1942, 
59-year-old Conies received life in prison doing hard labor at the Colorado State Penitentiary in Canyon City, Colorado. He died in the prison hospital on May 16, 1967. Okay, that was a super creepy haunted house case, but now we're ready to turn our attention to a more modern one. It hasn't resulted in a murder, yet, and hopefully never will, but it is also creepy AF. I'll just use the abbreviation to keep this a more uh, PG, PG-13 friendly episode. You may even remember the headlines from this one. The story of the Westfield Watcher went viral worldwide back in 2015. I didn't write about it on Haunt Johns until 2016, when the house came back on the market. Let's quickly recap what happened leading up to that, though. And beyond, because a lot has happened since back then. In 2014, Derek and Maria Bradas bought the house in Westfield, New Jersey for $1.35 million. They claimed that shortly after closing, they received a menacing letter from an unidentified person that, among other things, contained the following creepy declaration. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. It was signed simply, The Watcher. They also claimed other letters stated things like, Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time they will. And, I am pleased to know your names now and the name of the young blood you have brought to me. Referring to their young children. Consequently, due to the letters, the Broadus family never moved into the home. Instead, they sued the previous homeowners, John and Andrea Woods, for failing to reveal the house had a stalker, or rather, failing to disclose that someone had a mentally disturbed fixation on the house. The Broadduses wanted not only the purchase price of the house back, but trouble, triple, damages because they were unable to live in the home without extreme anxiety and fear for their children's safety and well-being. The Woods contend that they had lived in the home since the 1960s and had ever only recently received a letter from the Watcher, a week before closing. The Broadduses tried to resell the home for $1.5 million in 2015, but then took it off the market. In 2016, they relisted it for $1.25 million, uh, less than their original purchase price. This is about the time that I grew interested in the story. And one of my favorite articles about the case back then was from Lauren Evans of The Gothamist. Bill Schaefer, whose family had lived in the house prior to the woods from 1955 to 1963, had contacted her to say the watcher note was a load of crap. His family had never received any kind of creepy notes like that. 
They'd never heard of a watcher or anything like that at all. He loved living in the house, had nothing but happy memories of it, and would live there again in a heartbeat. Then she received an email about how someone's adult son on the block was probably responsible. He was sort of a local crazy who made life quote-unquote uncomfortable for neighbors, but no one talked about it because they were afraid to poke the bear, so to speak, for fear they'd antagonize him and he'd somehow retaliate in a more aggressive or dangerous form against them. So Evans went to check Westfield out and see if she could get to the bottom of things. Her first stop was the police, who had nothing to say. She tried questioning residents and neighbors, but pretty much everybody just kept mum. She did have an interesting conversation with Horace Corbin, though, publisher of the Westfield Leader, the town's local paper. Corbin felt there were a lot of weird things about the Broaddus' story. Weird beyond a watcher supposedly stalking the house. Weird as in timing and that the timing of their action issues that it just didn't add up. For instance, Corbin had posed the question to Evans. When did the closing happen? When was the lawsuit filed? And when was all the work done? The work he referred to being the thousands of dollars worth of renovations the Broadduses claimed they made to the home after they'd bought it. Evans didn't know the answers to those questions at the time, but Corbin informed her that the Broadduses did not go to the police upon receiving the letters. Not at first. They went to the Union County prosecutor, which was odd. They also didn't file a lawsuit against the Woodses, the family they'd bought the home from, until a year after they were allegedly too scared to fully move into their home. And what about all that work they'd done? Neighbors Corbin talked with said they hadn't seen contractors at the house and he hadn't found any permits filed with the city. Corbin also questioned how a couple who had bought a $300,000 house in Scotch Plains 10 years before and who had a $175,000 mortgage could suddenly afford a million-dollar house. He also thought it was weird that in 10 years the family had had 12 mortgages, which is a little weird. And I'm going to pause in Corbin's questioning of the Broaddus' motives here for a second and skip into the future for a moment. Mr. Broaddus, Derek, would eventually respond to this questioning that, that that was the American way. Houses appreciated and you sell and buy a more expensive one. Which is true, a lot of people do that. However, 10 years, that time frame would have been the span of 2004 to 2014. And 2004 to 2007 was a hot housing market just about everywhere. Tons of people were flipping houses and making pretty good money. That could explain 10 mortgages. Plus, the Broaddus's Scotch Plains house could have appreciated during then and maybe they kept refinancing or taking out mortgages to take advantage of great low interest rates. However, you may remember the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010-ish. The housing market at that time was disastrous. 
foreclosure city in many places and any equity the Broadduses may have had in their home was likely wiped out and is unlikely to have recovered much by 2014. Probably a little bit though, but anyways, I do get where Corbin is coming from with his thinking. Okay, so back to Evan's interview with Corbin. Maybe, though, the weirdest of all that he brought up was when he told her that even before there was any news of the Watcher's letters, neighbors had come to visit Corbin to dig up dirt on why no one had moved into the house on 657 Boulevard. They thought it was strange that someone had bought the house 10 months before and hadn't moved in yet. Perhaps the Broadduses had planned to flip the house and had maybe counted on the housing market having heated back up again so that they could do that, but it wasn't quite there yet. But did they concoct the Watcher story then? And if so, why? To generate interest in their house and publicity? I don't know and I'm not sure we'll ever get the answer to that, but... The story continues. In 2017, the Broadduses sued to have the house demolished to make way for a developer to build two houses on the land after the Westfield Planning Board unanimously rejected their proposition for an exception in their case. The board wasn't being unfair. If divided, the lots would measure 67.4 and 67.6 feet wide each. The town mandated lots needed to be a minimum of 70 feet. In a 2018 article, The Cut presented the most thorough examination of the case of the haunting of 657 Boulevard up to that time. It included more of the creepy letters than had ever previously been released. It also included details like how the Broadduses had attended a barbecue to welcome their family and another new family who had recently moved into the neighborhood. And um, no one at that time knew about the letters because police had instructed the Broadduses not to talk about it. One of the neighbors might be the culprit. One of the neighbors at the party mentioned the Langfords to Derek. They lived next door to the Broadduses and were an odd but harmless family, the neighbor told them. Peggy Langford, who was in her 90s, and some of her adult children all in their 60s, lived with her, lived at home with her. One of them, Michael Langford, was the neighbor Lauren Evans from The Gothamist had received an email about. Derek Broaddus immediately felt Michael Langford must be the watcher even though the neighbor who was telling Derek about the Langfords also told Derek that Michael was harmless. But when the Broadduses went to the police, Detective Lugo said he'd already questioned Michael a week after the first letter had arrived. But there was no hard evidence against him, and it really didn't seem like it could be him. Frustrated that the detective was saying Michael was probably harmless and probably nothing would come of all of this, Derek put up cameras and would sit up in the dark watching for anyone who approached his house. He also hired a private investigator and consulted the FBI agent who had served as the inspiration for Clarice Starling in The Silence of the Lambs because they served on the high school board of trustees together. 
They also hired former FBI agent Robert Lenahan to examine their case, who analyzed the letters and didn't feel whoever had written them would act on any of the threats, but he did point out that whoever wrote them seemed resentful of wealthy people and perhaps people with newer money who were moving in from other places. Derek and Maria remained convinced it was their next-door neighbors, the Langfords, but investigators wanted to consider other neighbors, like two child sex offenders who lived within a few blocks of them. They'd also retrieved DNA from one of the letters, which had been determined to belong to a woman. This redirected the Broaddus' attention to the Langford family because one of Michael's sisters, Abby, worked as a real estate agent. Was she upset about losing out on a commission when the woods sold because she wasn't their selling agent? Um, and because so much attention had been drawn to their previously quiet hamlet, a veteran detective of the Westfield Police, Baron Chambliss, was asked to look into the case. In addition to selling real estate, Abby Langford also worked at Lord & Taylor. Chambliss worked with a security guard at the store to retrieve a water bottle that Abby had drank from after she had discarded it in the trash. Westfield PD tested her DNA to see if it was a match on the letter. It wasn't. The Broadduses felt there was a conspiracy against them. They had only recently told prosecutors that they were going to file a civil suit against the Langfords, and now there was suddenly this DNA evidence, which was obviously not favorable to any lawsuit they might file. Well, the Langfords equally were obviously pissed. As Sandy Langford pointed out, his family had lived in their home since 1961 with no issues or complaints from anyone else and suddenly the Broadduses moved in and had this weird stuff happening and were immediately pointing fingers at the Langfords just because Sandy's brother Michael was a little off. Well, Westfield PD did try to pursue some more avenues. They also asked for DNA samples from a couple of other suspects, including former owners Andrea Woods and her son. But that nothing came of that either. And there was one other family who later said they had also received a weird note around the same time that the Broadduses received their first one but they just threw theirs out. Their kids were grown, and it just didn't seem like anything except an anomaly. Investigators only found out about it because after the story first hit the news about the Broaddus' letters, one of the kids from this other family posted about it on Facebook, but then later deleted it. And it just didn't do anything except confuse the case more because since the family no longer had that letter, the police couldn't compare handwriting to the ones the Broadduses had received or try to, you know, obtain another DNA sample. Basically, there was nothing potentially useful left for them to, to try to work with. Detective Chambliss did conduct a couple of stakeouts, though, and one night a suspicious car stopped in front of 657 Boulevard. It belonged to a girl who lived in a nearby town. 
Her boyfriend lived on the same block as the Westfield Watcher house, though. During questioning, she told them how her boyfriend had been into some dark video games, including one where he played as a character called The Watcher. The boyfriend was at that time now living elsewhere, though. He initially agreed to come in for questioning, but he never showed up. Chambliss wondered if maybe it was a prank and perhaps the girlfriend had helped, maybe her DNA was on the envelopes, but there was no evidence to compel the boyfriend to appear for questioning or to justify obtaining a DNA sample from the girlfriend. When nothing else happened and no new clues presented themselves, the case went cold. Soon after the hearing with the planning board in 2017, the Broadduses were able to rent the house to another family, who had a clause in their lease that said they could terminate if another letter was received. Two weeks after they moved in, Derek went to handle a squirrel problem at his now rental house. The renter handed him a note from the watcher, the first one to arrive in two and a half years. Of course, the renter was creeped out, but he said as long as Derek put up cameras around the house, he'd stay. And of course, the Broadduses went right to the police with the letter, which had in part said, you wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. But police ascertained it didn't quite feel like the first letters, more like someone who had been following the story and was trying to copycat. As it would turn out, there would be more than one Wraith Watcher in Westfield. On Christmas Eve in 2017, residents who had spoken out against the Broadduses online found anonymous letters in their mailboxes signed from friends of the Broaddus family. The letters accused the people of inaccurately speculating about the Broadduses and their motives. Reeves Weidman, author of the Cut article, asked Derek if he had written those letters. And guess what? Derek admitted he had and that even his wife hadn't known that he'd done that. He said he wasn't proud of it and that those were the only anonymous letters he'd written. The Broadduses ended up selling the house at a $400,000 loss to Andrew and Allison Carr, the home's newest owners, in 2019. But don't feel bad for the Broadduses. As Patch.com pointed out in October 2021, they likely recouped their losses and maybe even made a little bit of change in the process with their Netflix deal. Because, oh yeah, in case you haven't heard, Netflix is turning their story into a limited series starring Naomi Watts and Bobby Cannavale. It's being produced by Ryan Murphy of American Horror Story fame and Ian Brennan, who teamed with Murphy for Ratchet. And it'll be titled, what else? The Watcher. Production on it recently started, and it looks like it'll be released sometime in 2022.
Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Haunting American True Crimes. If you've enjoyed it, remember to like and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. We have one more regular episode left in this series. It'll be a devilishly delicious one. But then the week after that, we're also going to release a bonus episode comprised of some tidbits and takeaways dug up and discerned while researching all of this season's episodes. So yeah, there's more good stuff coming. Plus, we're already working on next season's theme, which we'll reveal soon. Subscribe so you don't miss out. With that, I'll bid you adieu until the next time we sail the airwaves together. Ciao for now.